Good evening. This is Cinema 60. On tonight's program, Bart and Jenna begin their investigation into the rise of bootleg bonds in the 60s with a look at the Derek Flint and Matt Helm movies. Grab your coat, get your pail, let me take you in the barn, dear. Just sit back and watch, cause I found a cow who gives gods. Here we are, it's episode 14. Can you believe that? We did it. And we all know what 14 means. It means 007 twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's... That's what it means. We decided that basically since episode 007 had to be about James Bond, and James Bond was such a thing, every seven episodes we're going to start doing bootleg Bonds. For as long as we find it interesting. (laughs) No, it's forever, Bart. We might get one more episode out of this, maybe. Oh, no, I'm taking you all the way. (laughs) (laughs) How much can you say about Bond ripoffs? There's a lot. Well, um... By the mid-60s, uh, the, the world was in the middle of bond fever, and so uh, every country in the world was creating their own versions of James Bond. America started up a couple of their own series, a uh, couple American agents uh, to go head-to-head with this uh, British secret agent, Derek Flint and uh, Matt Helm. And we're going to talk about these two series in this episode. Mainly it's just an excuse so that uh, Jenna can talk about Dean Martin for a while, because we haven't really had much of an opportunity to talk about him so far. We sort of wedged him into some Jerry Lewis discussion, I think, but that's about it. Here's the thing. I may be slightly obsessed with Dean Martin at the moment, and part of that is actually because of these Matt Helm movies, because I got it in my head that I should watch these And then I watched one and I thought to myself, Dean Martin has got to be the sleaziest, worst (laughs) person in the world. He has to be. And I decided I got to know more about this. And I Googled Dean Martin's sexual harassment. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, please, I want to hear all of the horrible stories about how Dean Martin is a creep. And to my surprise, the more that I Googled, I couldn't find any bad stories about him. They were all positive. And even from these movies, all of the people that worked with him on these movies were like, oh, Dean was a sweetheart, really nice guy, love working with Dean. All of the women that he's ever worked with were like, love Dean Martin. He was so charming and nice. And I was like, how is this possible? And the only bad information that I could find about Dean Martin was from (laughs) ex-wives. Otherwise, everyone seems to have loved him. And so then this launched let's just say full-on year-long obsession with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. And then I've read now about six books on the two of them. And I'm still going, actually, sadly. So, yes, I do. I am. This might be a bit of an excuse. but, But as you said, Bond was like a really big part of the 60s. And it's really hard to ignore. And these movies are kind of a big part of that too yeah i mean 1966 was really the big year for these bond ripoffs there were a few leading up to that there well i don't i don't need to start listing bond ripoff movies but really like after thunderball came out in uh in 1965 there was an explosion of these things and so both the first 
Flint movie and the first Matt Helm movie were in 1966. Our Man Flint coming out just a month after Thunderball hit theaters. So uh, obviously it was already in production. They were already gearing up for the Bond craze that was about to happen. Goldfinger was really the Bond movie that took the world by storm. I mean, I think the first couple Bonds were, were pretty pretty popular, but by the time the third one happened, the world went Bond crazy. Can I just say really quickly that in our previous Bond episode, where you quote the famous, men want to be him and women want to sleep with him, mm-hmm. in the last week... At the time of recording, I saw that they actually were re-releasing Bond's clothing from these movies, like replicas of outfits that he wears, and that onesie he wears in Goldfinger. The baby blue. (laughs) That thing sold out completely, immediately. I dare anybody to wear that thing. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, it was the most popular thing, and it was like $500 to buy that onesie and it sold out immediately terry cloth swimsuit baby blue onesie if you want a picture of it you can go on cinema-60.com and check out our bond episode and there is a photo of it prominently right in the middle there but anyhow i just want to say you were right men still want to be him continue well um i can't say i'm all that fond of flint's outfits in these movies but matt helm has got some pretty sweet what's it called side divorce yeah all his side divorce outfits are very distinctive. Yeah, because it was just the stuff that he had. Yeah. <laughs> that was like his own personal tailor, and he wouldn't like stray, essentially. And yes, every single outfit that that man has made for all of these stars, from Elvis to Dean Martin to even Jerry Lewis to many men, are freaking fantastic and beautiful. Not going to lie, they're wonderful suits. A lot of all-white happens. White is always a main component of anything that Dean Martin is wearing, which seems like a terrible choice for a secret agent, but... (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so both the Flint series and the Matt Helm series got their start in 1966, and I really thought we would have been fine just talking about the first movie in each of these series, but Jenna convinced me that, no, we've got to beat these things to death. So we watched every (laughs) single... Flint movie, there are two of them, and every single Matt Helm movie, there are four of them. I mean, predictably, they get worse and worse as they go. But, you know, we'll get into how terrible some of these later films are. And based on how much you enjoy camp and and watching movies that are so bad they're good, you might actually prefer the the later films in these series. I think we should just uh, jump right in and start with our man Flint. My man Flint. My man. You hadn't seen this before. You you enjoyed it. I thought I had seen this and I did Austin Powers stole so many gags from both of these series that, uh, you know, you'll watch them feeling like you've seen them before. Very true. But I, this was pleasantly surprising. Arguably the, the best of any of these movies, at least, you know, the cleverest, the most well-made of any of these six films is the first Flint movie, Our Man Flint, directed by Daniel Mann. More of a Broadway 
director type. Most of the movies that he made were based on plays, you know, like Rose Tattoo and Come Back Little Sheba. He did Butterfield 8. Interestingly, he was uh, just coming off several Dean Martin movies when he made Our Man Flint. He had just done Ada, Who's Got the Action, and Who's Been Sleeping in My Bed. The star of these Flint movies is James Coburn, and he's definitely a James Bond type, but even more heightened. Like, uh, you know how M will mention any criminal's name, and Bond will be able to give a complete rundown of that criminal's entire history, and, uh, you know, he can see a picture of uh, anybody and know exactly who they are. Flint is that to the nth degree. He knows everything about everything. He's just utterly competent in every way imaginable. He's a master of Eastern medicine and every sport. He is, uh, you know, he's a fencing master. He's a judo master. He's He loves ballet. He loves art. He loves dancing. He loves music. He speaks many languages. He invents all of his own high-tech spy gear. He can sniff a poison dart and tell you that the maker enjoyed the bouillabaisse uh, made in Marseille. So that's the direction the parody is going. It's just, you know, everything Bond can do, Flint is ten times that. Although I don't think, he's not a drinker, right? He lays off the alcohol for the most part. He's way more into culture than he is. I'm sure that he knows exactly the right wine pairing for every food that is put in front of him, but he doesn't have a specific drink that I can remember. And he doesn't overindulge. No. He doesn't walk into a room and, and need a drink immediately. Except for women. He overindulges <laughs> in women. But they're all very... He's very, like, 1960s free love style open-mindedness and like in, like, a genuinely cool and not creepy way, which, like, I never thought I would say about anything even bootleg James Bond related. But, like, Flint? I was impressed with Flint. I was like, man, you got it. You're a cool guy. He definitely would never force a woman to do anything the way James Bond would. Like, he's fine with, uh, you know, lots of casual sexual encounters, but, you know, if it seems right and natural... and She has you know, to he initiate. Would... Right, exactly. He's a secret agent, an American spy who's had so much success uh, working for ZOWIE, the Zonal Organization for World Intelligence and Espionage. This movie's version of the CIA... Or David Bowie's son. Or David Bowie's son. That he uh, has retired and now he's just pursuing, you know, he's writing books, uh, you know, scientific studies and all sorts of hobbies he, he's got outside of espionage. But unfortunately, there are some bad guys who've decided to um, take control of the weather and cause all sorts of weather disasters with whatever equipment evildoers use to affect the weather. Straight up global warming. It's straight up global warming. <laughs> it is very timely. And they've just killed every Zowie agent or team of agents that's gone up against them. And they they really have no choice. Lloyd Cramden, the, the head of Zowie, has to call upon Derek. Uh, and he doesn't really want to either. He would rather not work with Derek Flint because he's a loner. He doesn't like to take directions from anybody. <laughs> he's a loner daddy. A rebel. <laughs> But Coburn has to pick up his guns again. He thought he'd hung them up for good, but they dragged him back in. And now he has to defeat these evil, weather-affecting supervillains. I don't know. I'm already losing steam on these movies. I... 
just to talk about them, to have to like recount their plots is... I like Flint. I'm glad you're talking about the Matt Helm movies, because that means it's only one more movie I have to <laughs> recount the plot of. Like, the plot, it's like, we're back to the James Bond episode, where the plots here don't 100% matter. The ma- What matters is who the guy is, and if you actually want to watch him be a super spy or not. And Flint is a cool guy. And I have to say, I was not expecting, I, you know, James Bond, I, I can, I get it. Like, it, James Bond is fun to watch, but I don't like James Bond as a person. As you said, he is a rapist. <laughs> and um, mostly, uh, just kind of like sleazy and like, uh, I don't know, like, I just, he's not like my kind of guy. Flint is 100% my kind of guy. I am 100% for Flint. He seems super chill and cool. Uh, Like he has four women that he lives with who seem overly devoted to him and they kiss him all the time and he sleeps in like a quilted spider web. But you know what? Like the fact that he's not as into the whole spy thing and he's not as into like the sex thing unless women are like asking for it is just like he seems chill. He seems like a nice guy. And even like the there's like a bad chick in this who tries to seduce him and it takes a really long time. Like he even is sort of like a little surprised and suspicious that she's even offering. And it like it really takes for her to like basically drop all of her clothing for him to be like, nah, right. Like (laughs) you want to go for it. Okay, who am I to deny you the pleasure? And I and also the best part is that by the end of this movie, he basically rescues a bunch of women from being conditioned as pleasure units without even a nod or a wink to the camera about how tempting it is for him not to do that. And I think that that is the only Bond ripoff that avoids a joke like that. You might be right about that, but he does have a harem and they're all basically his own personal pleasure units by choice. So uh, I'm not sure what kind of a pro-feminist statement that is exactly, that he uh, <laughs> doesn't want them brainwashed into becoming sex slaves. Yeah, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> go as far as feminist, but I don't know. He just, like, you know, he just seems like a good guy, you know? Like, he also owns three dogs. I'm into that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a, a well-trained German shepherd and two Big dogs. What are those that don't don't seem to do anything but stand by the elevator? Yeah, two Irish wolfhounds. Yeah, the opening credits is a total James Bond ripoff. It's just, oh my uh, god, they're so the opening know, credits are terrible. It's like sexy dancing ladies. naked women. Yep, and then they they're sexy dancing women, and then they they all get shot <laughs> <laughs> as like this like shitty like salsa synth soundtrack plays. Essentially, it's really bad. But. Outside of that, it really, it's mostly clever. It's not a lowest common denominator type spoof. It really is trying to do something a little bit more interesting with the Bond mythology, I guess. Unfortunately, the movie doesn't make me laugh that much. There's not a whole lot of actual laughing out loud for me, but there are a lot of clever jokes I appreciate. You know, the anti-American eagle that's protecting the evildoer's lair. Yes, that was amazing. There is an eagle that just sits on a perch, an actual eagle, and everyone who's conditioned essentially as a pleasure unit is like hanging out on this beach. In In a volcano city, by the way, the evildoer's lair is built into the side of a volcano. Very, very Bond. But the way that it looks itself, it reminded me of Star Trek in the best way. It's like a tramway, 
And like people like in this tropical paradise in this lab that's built into the mountains. And it's like these painted background sets. And it looks awesome, actually. I was really (laughs) impressed with it. I totally bought it. I loved it. And then they have this anti-American eagle that can sense if an American is there and it attacks them. And Flint is like, that's fucked up. (laughs) I don't know. By the time it gets to that island, I'm already pretty burnt out on the whole concept and most of the clever ideas have been used up already and it just turns into any other bond type movie except without the suspense because everything's so heightened and goofy that you care even less than in a bond movie what actually happens to these characters and whether the bad guys are defeated and the women are freed you mean when flint restarted that guy's heart by electrocuting his boss (laughs) and then holding his hand so he electrocuted himself through a lamp socket that didn't have you riveted (laughs) wow that was great but (laughs) and i kind of enjoyed lee j cobb's performance as his boss i just wanted to go more in the uh, pink panther direction really i wanted him to be the boss that wants to murder his top agent and flint to be a bumbling idiot it's just this kind of comedy doesn't do a whole lot for me it's just slightly heightened these bond movies are already spoofs themselves but these flint and matt helm movies are just they don't take it far enough There's really so little difference between them and the Bond movies that it's hard to care. I think Matt Helm takes it pretty far. Like, far enough that, like, it it seems very clear that it's a spoof, whether or not it actually is funny, because, spoiler, they're not very funny. But Flint, to me, actually doesn't even feel so much like a spoof as it feels like a genuine, like, American offering. Like, I know that there are spoof moments, and I know that there's a lot of silly moments in this, um, including that they mention a 008 from England, Mm -hmm. who looks like a bootleg Sean Connery. And Spectre is mentioned also. Yeah. Flint seems a little more straightforward, but with the sort of joke that, I don't know, it's like stuff like him dancing to 60s pop music or something is the joke. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I feel like the rest of it is kind of just James Bond. I thought it was pretty good, actually. I was really impressed with this. Never mind that, like, it's about global warming and, like, has that one scene where Flint pretends to be, like, a Middle Eastern terrorist, which is pretty racist. (laughs) But he clears out a room, and it felt very 2010s. And I like that they really, like, bought into that secret lair, and they kind of bought into the whole displeasure unit crap, which then they show you all of these sort of brothel rooms that are all themed. So not sexy, too. Super unsexy. There's nothing sexy about the Flint movies. I mean, I think, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I really find that James Coburn has very little sex appeal. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, I I mean, like, he's not a bad looking guy. But yeah, he doesn't, I don't know. He's fine. I like him as this sort of cultured guy. I think that that really works for him. But, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a lot more to say about this particular movie. I'm looking forward to when we're done talking about them, and we can sort of compare and contrast Helm and Flint. So do you want to lead us into the first of the Matt Helm movies, which came out the same year, about a month later. The 
Silencers came out in 1966, directed by Phil Carlson, who you might even recognize from the Phoenix City story or Kansas City Confidential. Yeah, he did some cheapo noirs. He even did the Kid Galahad Elvis Presley movie. Oh, right. <laughs> but the Silencers... Okay, here's the thing. Okay. <laughs> Two things happening. You have, number one, you have Dean Martin, which I'm going to give you way more information than you've ever needed about Dean Martin. And unfortunately, this is the part of Dean Martin that I don't really enjoy so much. And I don't really enjoy these Matt Helm movies, but I do, I, I get like a, a sort of sick, twisted kick out of them. <laughs> But at this point in Dean Martin's career, in 1966, he had essentially hit a wall. He was 49 at the time when he did The Silencers. He was getting super tired of just everything. He was tired of the Rat Pack drama that he had been hanging out with. He was getting tired of Sinatra. He was doing his shows in Vegas. He had the Dean Martin show had just begun in 65 and was this total smash hit, even though he put in absolutely minimum to zero effort into doing it. That's not an act. He literally did put in zero effort. It was written into the contract that he didn't ever have to actually rehearse for it. And he would just show up and read his lines. But on Dean Martin's side, he had been working without really any break for decades. And he had been in debt and caught up in court for many, many, many decades. And finally, around this time, he was finally rich and famous and sort of realizing in that very Peggy Lee style, you know, is, is that all there is to fame, to life? And then the silencers came around. These were books that were written by this um, Donald Hamilton, who had written a series of these novels about Matt Helm, which were essentially just American 007. They're serious books. Apparently I've never read them. They came out, I think in 1960 was the first one. And so everyone wanted to compete with Bond. Columbia Pictures specifically bought the rights. Uh, but uh, they had a really hard time casting Matt Helm because nobody wanted to go up against Connery. Nobody really wanted to come out as the one that was trying to beat James Bond. Yeah, didn't I read that Paul Newman was the first person they approached to play Matt Helm? Paul Newman would have been an awesome James Bond type if it was a serious film, I think. I mean, he's definitely good looking enough. Like, he definitely embodies that type of man. But, I mean, they couldn't really hire anyone who was interested and wanted to go up against Connery or, or maybe even cared in some ways. Um, so then they realized that why don't we just make this a spy parody? And Dean Martin is actually a great alternative. And to be fair, Dean Martin for sure is the type of guy that, you know, men want to be and women want to sleep with. That's always been his charm. He was laid back enough and cool enough that men were always attracted to him and women would throw themselves at him. So in some ways, he is actually a very natural Bond pick. But, you know, as a serious actor, I will say that Dean Martin has made a lot of really interesting, serious acting efforts which I'm sure that we will talk about at some point because I will force Bart to do it. Hey, I, I've got no problem with Dean Martin. It's these movies that I have an issue with. Yeah, these are not good movies. And, you know, at 49, this sweaty, leathery alcoholic, I mean, I don't think he's got much sex appeal anymore at this point either. No, and that's kind of part of what I love about these movies is that it's like an alternative universe where every like 20-year-old woman wants 
a 49-year-old Dean Martin who is just like slightly past his prime. And he still looks good in the fir- at least the first couple of movies. He still looks good. But he's also visibly intoxicated <laughs> in several scenes. Oh, yeah. I mean, every punchline is a cutaway because he just couldn't deliver the line when he was supposed to. At this point in his life, Dean Martin did not care. He did not want to do anything, and he refused to rehearse, which is something that he refused to do in general. But in these, he really refused to rehearse, and, and it was one take, period. He would not redo the take. Unless there was a mistake, unless there was an over-error and mistake, he would do one take, and if you got all the dialogue, you got all the blocking, you got everything, he was done. He would not do another take. So, like, yes. <laughs> This is Dean Martin not caring whatsoever. But, you know, the one-takeness of these movies is part of their charm in a way. Like, it sort of feels like some of these punchlines were just inserted because, uh, you know, somebody on the set was like, well, well, Dean, why don't you say this now? You know, sort of the Judd Apatow line-a-rama style where it's like, uh, you know, throw a few punchlines out there and see what works. And and I kind of like that about these movies. I mean, they feel so lazy in a way that's fairly charming. I mean, The Silencers is a terrible movie, but in its way, I enjoy it more than Our Man Flint. I definitely laughed a lot more at this movie than I did at the other one. I think that the Matt Hell movies are actually, they're more overt comedies. And Dean Martin's funny. You know, as much as he is phoning it in hardcore, he is a naturally funny guy. And I think that he manages, especially in the first movie, because you definitely see a very clear drop-off on him giving a shit Uh, Which ends in him just, you know, the last movie, which says that another movie's coming. And then he just said, nope, not doing it. And and they had to go to court over it. He does a good job. And a lot of this, too, I think that they incorporate a lot of his Vegas stage show um, material, which is a lot of him making drinking jokes and stuff like that. But so the silencers... um, Again, it's hard to sum these up because, like, the plot literally just doesn't matter. But Matt Helm, he's an agent of ICE, which stands for the Intelligence Counter Espionage and not the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Mm -hmm. a name that did not age well. And he, by day, especially now, he's sort of in semi-retirement, as all of these characters seem to be. He is a photographer for Slaymate magazine, <laughs> which is essentially Playboy magazine. And he gets called out of retirement because his terrorist group, which is called Big O, run by a man named Tung Z, who is played by Victor Buono in Yellowface. Not even. I mean, some of the worst Yellowface I've ever seen. Like They're not, not trying to fool anybody there. He looks more <laughs> like Orson Welles than he looks anything in this movie to me i mean like just the name is the only thing you have to go on the fact that he's meant to be chinese but maybe he's got a fu manchu mustache or something but not even i don't know if he does his facial hair kind of suggests some uh asian mastermind yeah and like he's trying to take over the world i don't know it's your like your standard thing and matt helm ends up partnering with this other female agent played by dahlia lavi but he essentially ends up partnering with this sort of hapless and clumsy fool of a woman who is played by Stella Stevens, who was in The Nutty Professor with Jerry Lewis. So there you go. Here's a connection. But she, he like ends up with her because they think her boyfriend 
or at least her date for the night, ends up being a member of Big O. And so they start to suspect her, but she's just kind of this clumsy loser who's just caught up in everything and doesn't know how to get out of it. And so she gets mistaken for this super spy, mostly because of bad timing. Yeah, poor Sid Charisse has this magnetic tape with some secret instructions or something, and they shoot her unceremoniously. She does a striptease number, and Stella Stevens is there next to her when she's dying, and she hands the tape to her. That's another reason they suspect that Gail Hendricks is working for Big O. Sid Charisse, who is in this, like, bizarre nude swimsuit but with these black tassels all over her that makes her look like she's covered in weird alien nipples it is like the least sexy thing i've ever seen in my life and even on sid Cherise, who's very beautiful it was great it was wonderful her opening credits number is more appealing i actually really enjoyed the opening credits for this movie it's probably my favorite of any of these six it's fun yeah it's just a series of striptease numbers that you know only go as far as you can go in an american movie in 1966 in this club that they end up in later in the movie and it's also got that whole rat pack feel it's very vegas pop jazz standards and actually what i love most about this movie is when matt helm is daydreaming and his dreams are all parodies of famous songs of his it's so campy it's so funny they they drop this gimmick pretty quickly from the matt helm series it happens in every single one of them not as much as in this first one true oh in the last one they bring it back for the last one too but i don't think the i don't know it happens at least in three out of the four I think it happens in all of them because they basically are like, well, we have Dean Martin. Let's make him sing something. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite part of this movie is when he, in the beginning, he comes back to his house and he walks in and he sees this like trail of clothing leading to the bathroom. And, you know, it's clearly a sexy woman. And he opens the door and there is a sexy woman standing there wearing nothing but one of his shirts. And they start making out. Suddenly she has this huge knife that she's about to stab him with. And right as she's about to do that, suddenly she gets shot like sniper style from the window in the back. And literally while they're making out and like Matt Helm looks distressed (laughs) because this woman gets shot just in his arms. And then it turns out that it is a very another sexy woman from the window who then like steps in with this huge sniper rifle And then he, like, drops the dead body and he just starts to make out with her (laughs) in less than, like, 30 seconds of this other woman having died in his arms. To me, honestly, it's exactly what James Bond is. And they're just, like, owning it to the nth degree to the point that I can't even be mad because it's just so true. (laughs) It's just so perfect. Yeah, you're definitely living in a movie. There's nothing even close to resembling reality in any of these James Bond or James Bond ripoff movies. It's just clearly this fantasy. I mean, I guess we've got uh, superheroes now that has kind of taken over the Bond mythology as the fantasy that everyone wants to live in now. But part of what makes the plots so inconsequential and, and part of makes them in general so boring for me is that it exists in this world where nothing matters and nothing happens the way it would in reality. And you have to love the fantasy or... These movies will do nothing for you. I mean, you're, you're really watching these movies for the women. And especially in Matt Helm, 
there are way sexier women in Matt Helm than there are in, in even the Bond movies, I think. Like, they just, like, really loaded up. It's super Playboy-inspired. I mean, Stella Stevens was an ex-Playmate, which isn't to say that she doesn't do a great job in this, because she does. Like, she, I actually like Stella Stevens a lot. I think she, of all of the women in any of the Matt Helm movies, she's the funniest. She actually has good comedic timing. Yeah, I mean, they really overplay her clumsiness, and it's a little... It's annoying. It's unfortunate, but I would say in general that there's at least one woman in each of these Matt Helm movies that is a fully developed character, like more than what you can't say about the women in any James Bond movie. They all seem to have arcs of some sort. Stella Stevens is an innocent who's caught up in this whole ordeal, and it's, you know, sort of Hitchcockish. And I actually think that the Donald Hamilton novels were all kind of structured that way, where you've got this innocent who's caught up in this intrigue and really shouldn't have any part of it. You know, they're not trained spies. It's the man from uncle scenario. It's it's the Alice in Wonderland scenario, I think is the trope where it is like, there's always one person who's been thrown into this world and has to deal with it. But these movies go way further, even than man from uncle ever does, even though that's a part of this whole bootleg bond thing, which, and we will definitely watch those man from uncle movies. (laughs) I love man from uncle. Aren't there like 10 of them, though? We're going to watch them. I will not commit to that. They're really good. They're like legit good. I have to say, though, real quick about Stella Stevens in this, that her introduction scene, super obnoxious. Literally, it's her ass is the introduction. Oh, yeah. Her wet butt is in Matt Helm's face. She is bending over in like the weirdest, ugliest swimsuit I have ever seen (laughs) in my life. I just do not understand this swimsuit. And I am sorry, it just looks like an adult diaper. It looks like an hourglass on the front. So it covers her chest and it covers her bottom and all the rest of it is mesh. It looks horrible (laughs) and I just don't understand it. And I'm like, what kind of tan lines are you getting from this thing? And it's just the most disgusting, awful. And like, and Stella Stevens is very beautiful and she has a great body, but like, oh my God, like it's just the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And I just have to mention it because I just hate it. My problem is that the hair color that they've chosen for her, kind of an unnatural red color, really makes her look like Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> and uh, I'm, you know, a more buxom version, I guess, with uh, without the range. Uh, She's kind of acting like Shirley MacLaine in this. Yeah. Um, was a good friend of Dean and that, I, f- I found that a little distracting. Otherwise, the women are pretty interchangeable. I mean, Lovey Craves It doesn't have much of an arc, even though she's in three of these movies. Oh, my God, yes. Matt Helm's secretary is named Lovey Craves It. P.S. The best thing about Matt Helm is that every single movie, except for, I think, the last movie, every movie ends with, he has, a, a like, a round <laughs> bed that rotates. I'm I'm... I just presume it rotates. And if you press a it doesn't, button... It definitely tips. I'm not sure it rotates. It definitely rotates. Come on. It's the 60s. <laughs> yeah, probably We rotates. don't see it rotating, but we all know it rotates. And You've just seen Austin Powers too many times. <laughs> <laughs> and he presses a button and it moves the entire bed out of the bedroom. It opens these French doors and his sunken living room fills with water like a pool. And it's like pink water with bubbles. And it dunks whoever is on the bed into the pool. And it is the most sleazy and best thing I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) They get a lot of mileage out of that bed in this series. So much. They never fail to use it. 
And then it ends talking about Austin Powers. It ends in this volcano bad guy lair and there's a lot of lasers there's all of these metal tubes where like straight up austin powers you know when that scene where he's trying to reverse the golf cart so he can go the other way <laughs> i don't know what else oh there's the sex wagon car where stella stevens and matt helm have to drive somewhere and they decide that they're gonna camp out in the car otherwise they're too obvious and he like presses some buttons and the back seat turns into a, a really sleazy bed. <laughs> There's a little built-in bar inside of the car and she's horrified. And she has this scene where she doesn't even want to be near him. And so she tries to escape, but it's raining and she's wearing white. And of course she gets totally soaked and falls in mud way more than a normal human being would ever fall in mud. And then Matt Helm finally lets her back in the car and he's like, oh, you should take your clothes off and then you'll dry off. There's a lot of that. (laughs) These movies do seem to revolve around getting the clothes off women or forcibly ripping the clothes off women and having them stand in their underwear. Oh, yeah. He rips all of her clothing off. It's a little disturbing. It is disturbing. This is the sleaziest Matt Helm movie is the first one. Here's a little sample of the humor in this movie that I find so entertaining, not because it's clever or well-written, but uh, Tina, Dahlia Lavi, has him uh, unzip her dress, and it's shot from their shoulders up, and he looks down at her breasts and says, uh, you're really loaded. <laughs> and then you know we get a wider shot, and we see that she's got a gun in a bra holster that's made out of the same lacy material as her brassiere, and then he says... Talk about a booby trap. That's a crazy holster. (laughs) And then he pulls her towards him and and says, making love to you is like playing Russian roulette. That's the quality of the humor in this thing. (laughs) And it just, I find it hilarious. But it's terrible. It's terrible. But it's great. Actually, my favorite scene of this movie is the ending where it's like it ends with him on this revolving bed on on actually maybe that is when it revolves when when he's on his bed surrounded by a dozen women in like sexy lingerie and he's kissing like every single one that he can within like you know leaning reach and by the end of it he just hangs his head and he goes oh my god (laughs) and it's like because you know dean martin you're too damn old to be doing this shit like you know damn well so the next movie would be murderers row right Same year, came out in December. This is my favorite Matt Helm movie because it has Anne Margaret in it. And in a lot of ways, it's less sleazy and way more campy. And that's kind of what I appreciate about this movie. It's like it it goes just so hard into the camp. Uh, I thought it was boring. There's so little. I mean, when Anne Margaret's shaking her stuff, it's great. I, I I could watch an hour and a half of her crazy dancing and that would be a great movie. But unfortunately, that only takes up maybe a total of five or six minutes in the whole movie. And the rest is just pretty dull James Bond crap. (laughs) But why do you like this one? I mean, because Anne Margaret's shaking her stuff. Part of it is like, I don't totally know why this works for me, but it it just works. I think because it's a little more PG than it is PG-13, like the past one, Henry Levin directed 
Murderer's Row, 1966. The plot in this one is that all the top spies around the world have been murdered and Matt Helm is next. It's actually a a genuinely amusing joke, I think, is that the only photo they have of Matt Helm is from behind him making out with a woman and like just holding a scotch. (laughs) So that's like all they have to go by. But it starts with him shooting the super sleazy sleighmate calendar with Miss January, who ends up being a big O operative. And she tries to blow him up in his crazy bed in the pool. She gets blown up and he fakes his death. There's a good scene where it's his funeral and it's just all sexy women dressed in black weeping. <laughs> so let's hear it for the sleighmates. Yep, it's all the sleighmates, which apparently I've read Dean Martin may or may not have gone through in real life. <laughs> yeah, it, like, and then there's, I don't know, they're like trying to like steal the sun or something. <laughs> yeah, who, who knows? I, I Carl Malden is always a pretty good bad guy, but he can't seem to decide on what kind of foreign accent he wants to use in, in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And Ironhead is actually a, a pretty good henchman, too. Yeah. Clearly in the odd job mold. There's some kind of they're harnessing a helio beam. It's something about how the sun is the best destructive force in the world and there's a scientist is kidnapped and matt has to get him it turns out he's ann margaret's dad and ann margaret just sort of is at the pool when dean martin shows up in can and uh ann margaret's way too young to be with dean martin in this movie and they have this love affair that just does not match whatsoever it's really weird and if not like slightly creepy she's definitely old enough to be with him if she wanted to be but his age is starting to really show in this and it's only been half a year since the previous movie (laughs) well she keeps jumping on him and she looks like a a little girl in his arms in the mod dance club discotheque where dino desi and billy are playing right dean martin's son is in that band and desi arnaz jr and and he calls him dad, right? Yeah, he says to him, he, he goes down, he says, now you're swinging, dad, which is number one, a name of a Dean Martin album. Now I'm swinging. And then also it's literally his son, Dino Jr., who is the one that died, unfortunately, years later in the plane crash. Yeah, and Anna Margaret's like, he calls everyone dad. <laughs> I think I just, I like Anna Margaret's outfits in this movie. Yeah, always pink, right? <laughs> oh, no, she's got a black and white number in the final scene. And she actually gets to perform some heroic acts, right? She shoots some people, destroys some equipment, drives a hovercraft. She saves Matt Helm from the tubes of death. These stupid piston tubes, and they just shove Dean Martin in there. She saves him because she starts to flirt with one of the guards, and he starts to mansplain the stupid invention of these tubes. <laughs> <laughs> to the point that he's so distracted that she drops a hairpin in it and the whole thing explodes. That was pretty good. The whole Matt Helm series, they change it every single movie because it's such a money grab that they don't know what they're even doing with it. So the first one's kind of sleazy and it's appealing to the Playboy crowd. It's appealing to the Rat Pack crowd. And it did super well. It did so well that they started to pick these up. And then the second one seems to me like they're more trying to appeal now to the teens with Anne Margaret and with these like, you know, oh, there's so much dancing in this movie (laughs) that even and even Dean Martin's not dancing. It's just Anne Margaret like going to town. It's even like less of a Bond movie. Like, I mean, there's like some hovercrafts and there's uh, an ice ray gun. 
But I mean, like, it's mostly just Anne Margaret in like this dress made of daisies and a matching cap, you know, or like the polka dot low rise pants and a giant puffball lingerie. Like she just she's so mod and she's so trendy. They get a whole lot of mileage out of that 10 second delay pistol. Oh, yeah. And every one of these movies has the, I mean, even the Flint, I guess the Bond movies, too, with the, you know, the, just the, this equipment that they set up in the, in the beginning of the movie. You know this equipment is going to get used later in the movie, but in these Helm movies, they've only got one gadget, so they just need to use it over and over and over again. Like, any way they can use this single gadget. In the silencers, it's a gun that shoots backwards, and Stella Stevens takes out a whole bunch of people by making them fire on her but it shoots out the back of the gun and kills them and in this one the 10 second delay pistol i think every single except for Ironhead, who's got a metal plate in his head so and margaret picks him up with a giant magnet and drops him in some uh you know, burning lava or something but everyone else fires this pistol looks into the barrel and gets shot with it 10 seconds later to the point where, where matt helm is straight up counting down and they're all like huh let me look further yeah, I, I mean, like, this one's just dopey. I mean, there's also, like, there's psychedelic dance montages in this movie that honestly kind of remind me of the LSD films of 67 that we watched. <laughs> like, it's just really, I don't, like, it goes so hard into the camp that I just, I like, I kind of love it. I found it, it wasn't campy enough for me. There wasn't enough I could laugh at in it. I was trying to get me to laugh with it, and I wasn't having it. No, there's nothing to laugh with. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next movie is the other Flint movie, right? In Like Flint. Yeah, so after Murderer's Row, we get a real Bond movie. You Only Live Twice comes out at the beginning of 67, and Bond mania is not dying out at all, so they, they, I guess they figured, well, let's make a bunch more of these Bond parodies. We've got our American versions. Let's have another go around. So 67, we get In Like Flint. Coburn and Lee J. Cobb are back working for ICE to defeat an evil spa run by women <laughs> who are trying to put a couple of Russian women on a space station so they can control something. I don't know. It's all a great big plot for women to take over the world, but it, you know, in the end, the soldier army types who they've uh, enlisted to help them achieve their plans decide that, no, we, we'll just take the world for ourselves. So then... The women who are in charge of this cosmetics spa flip-flop sides and work with Flint to defeat these army baddies. This movie's terrible. <laughs> I had so much trouble getting through it. I can't tell you how many times I paused it and was ready to just quit this podcast completely. <laughs> say, I'm done. Was it Flint talking to a dolphin? <laughs> no, that was the one highlight where he's speaking dolphin. But it was so boring, and I had no idea what was going on or why anything was happening. There's some clever ideas in there, but, but geez, Gordon Douglas directed this one, who directed uh, Robin and the Seven Hoods, which we've discussed already. Oh, a, cl a classic, um, a classic. And, and, you know, a bunch of Rat Pack things. He did a Jerry Lewis movie, Way, Way Out, 
and he did the Sinatra, Tony Rome movies. So he's got a lot of Rat Pack experience, and he brings that touch to these Flint movies, and it's really not the right touch for this material. I don't know why he wasn't doing the Matt Helm movies, but he was the wrong guy for these Flint movies because the pacing is it's horrendous, ridiculously awful. Yeah. It just is endless. It goes on and on and on. The big contrast between the Flint movies and the Matt Helm movies is the Flint movies are pretty carefully scripted and a lot of the jokes are well written and they spend at least twice as much money on, on these Flint movies as they do the Matt Helm movies and you know they're trying to put out a Bond comparable product and they shouldn't have gotten this director who just lets people hang out and deliver their lines in the, in the most casual way possible. Probably the worst thing they could have done was bring in all those Dr. Strangelove references, like the war room when, when Flint goes to Russia and actually dances in the Russian ballet, which is fairly amusing. He sneaks into the war room at the Kremlin, and it's designed exactly like the war room. And Dr. Strangelove and the, and the Russian premier actually gets to have a one-sided conversation with the uh, president trying to reproduce the genius of Peter Sellers and failing completely. I have to admit that went so far over my head because it was so badly done that I didn't even notice that. I literally made a note. I was like, big eyebrow guy must be a parody. I did not make the connection. And now that you're saying it, I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) There may have been a good movie in here somewhere, but what shows up on the screen is pretty awful. We do get a uh, That's a Man Baby moment in it, though, where Lee J. Cobb shaves his mustache off and dresses as a woman to get into this females-only spa. The ruse doesn't last for long, though. The thing that kind of saved this movie for me, because the pacing is terrible, it sucks all of the fun out of the first movie and replaces it with, like, Flint talking to dolphins. But the thing that made me, like, at first, I, I like, I made a note because I was like, ugh, Like, I love to see how men imagine women's spaces. It is always hilarious. Like, stuff like in this one, this woman's only spa, where it's all these women that are posing perfectly, and they look like models only, and there's no embarrassment in front of each other, and they're all just naked and being the most, like, the utmost feminine and performative for each other, because that is, ah, that is what women are like. That, to me, was just hilarious to see. And then it ties so much into the plot of this film, which was hilarious and and great, actually. The best part of this movie is that it is essentially, like, runs on male anxiety (laughs) about this this fear of women getting together and in comparing notes about how horrible men are <laughs> because the re- they sort of give the reason for why these women are trying to take over the world is essentially that they're dissatisfied with their male overlords and that all of this brainwashing literally they use hair dryers to brainwash other women into basically being enlightened to this idea and that to me is just hilarious because it's just like you know, surely it could only take diabolical evil to wake women up to their shitty situations. <laughs> and they're like terrible husbands, you know? It's like, there's even a line where they say like, well, why do you think every time a woman comes back from the hairdresser, she's a little angrier at her husband or something like that? And it's like, yeah, man, like... But there's also a part where they're talking about how the women are going to take over the world anyway. And Flint is like, well, why not let things run their natural course? Yeah, because my will... man Flint is into that shit. My man Flint is like, yeah, like, all right, it's going to happen anyhow. 
Because they're sitting there telling him, like, you know, yeah, women are going to outlive men and we already run the world. You know, they say, think of your secretaries, your mistresses and your wives. Face it, Flint. Women are outliving you. And he's like, yeah, true. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that. I love this idea of of every time a woman goes into a, a beauty shop, she comes out a little more discontent with the man's world. It's so strange and funny. It almost feels subconsciously insightful. But, like, they didn't want to completely acknowledge it. So they had to add in, like, actual brainwashing. <laughs> but it's, like, this fear of what women get up to on their own when they collaborate. And the reason why these women even fail taking over the world is because they trust other men. And then the men backstab mm-hmm. them. I don't understand why cryogenics had to come into the plot or why the space station had to come into the plot. Oh, I don't know why those Russian cosmonauts were there. But at least we get Flint in space for a little while which was really not particularly entertaining. Actually, my favorite gag in the movie, the cleverest thing that it does, and I'm not sure how intentional this is either, is Operation Smooch, where all the women in the spa, they're taking boats to the male evildoers' headquarters, and the women are coming along dressed in bikinis and skimpy outfits just to distract the soldiers. You know, they're too distracted by making out to want to fire on anybody or carry out their instructions. And uh, it's just the visual of all these, like these Bond movies, all of these movies, all these Flint, these Bond, these Helm movies are just filled with all of these anonymous bodies. Like they're all these like anonymous male henchmen just fill these movies and are just there to be shot, to be killed. And all these beautiful anonymous female bodies are in these movies just to be made love to and they sort of get all of these anonymous bodies together and there's just like the the climactic part of this movie is just like you know hundreds of soldiers and sexy women making out and it seems like such a clever commentary on what these movies are doing but i'm not even sure i guarantee the director didn't see (laughs) that that's what he was doing probably the script writer I, it, I should also note that these Flint movies are based on original ideas. They're not based on books at all, like the Helm movies are. Not that the Helm movies probably resemble the books that they're based on at all, but... Apparently they do. I haven't read them. At least the plots are the same, but again, that's not saying much. Whoever's responsible for writing these Flint movies, I think it's the same people who wrote the first and the second one. Their names didn't mean anything to me. Their other credits didn't you know, didn't mean much. But they're cleverly written movies, so I'm, I'm willing to bet that that gag was intentional. But that's the only insight I have into this movie. Well, it's funny you mention that because The Ambushers, which is the next Matt Hell movie from 1967 now, which is directed by Henry Levin again, starts with exactly that. They get you when you're short Cause getting you is just their favorite Indoor, outdoor sport They get you in a mink Off the deep end in a drink Female, female Eddie Ambushers It's all of these sexy women in a military base learning how to use their sexiness to make men like melt their belt buckles off so <laughs> so their <laughs> pants fall down to their legs and they can't walk anymore and shoot them with their deadly brassiers 100 percent out of 10th victim my favorite film by elio petri which we will definitely speak about at some point we'll, we'll just keep mentioning elio petri's name until we finally do the episode <laughs> 
Well, the ambushers opens with, and this continues into the wrecking crew, which is the fourth one. But the ambushers has a horrible, ridiculous opening song that is just embarrassing. Oh, because women are the ambushers, right? That every woman is out to get every man. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like Spanish flea, but with sexy women trying to trap you into marriage or whatever the hell the lyrics are about. It is so, it is just embarrassing to, to watch and listen to. <laughs> But it's stylish. I remember thinking the credits were a little more interesting than the last few. Well, they don't even try. It's just like, it's just clips of sexy women dancing. It's like the most cliche. (laughs) I don't know. So I think you like this one more than I did. To me, ambushers now, now that we went from, all right, the first Matt Helm is super sleazy. The second one is super like PG. The ambushers to me feels like the most Bond movie. It feels like they're actually going for something more serious, but not too serious, but just like a little more (laughs) focused. Well, we are talking about a plot that involves UFOs powered by electromagnets. That only women can pilot because apparently men can't deal with electromagnetic technology. (laughs) They turn red and explode or something. Yeah, you know, as men do. But I found this movie so disturbing because of its plot and the sort of comic approach that it takes to the plot. Well, So it starts with Sheila, played by Janice Rule. Who's a legit actress. Yeah, she's great. I think she's probably the most solid and respectable of any of the females we have in any of these movies. Yeah, she's piloting this UFO that gets shanghaied by uh, Jose Ortega. He's got some uh, some electromagnets of his own, and he sucks the UFO into the... I mean, this is... I mean, the goal is like interstellar travel or something. They think that with this technology, we'll be able to travel to other galaxies and and whatever through the miracle of electromagnetics. So Jose Ortega steals this, um, this UFO and abducts Sheila, the pilot, and subjects her to the most horrific sexual abuse that her hair turns white and her skin goes pale and she's almost completely catatonic. So she ends up in this, you know, military hospital. You know, they sort of make her up so that she looks, you know, they, they make her hair dark again and they color her skin and they, but they make her go on this mission with Matt Helm to identify her abductor. Yeah. And it's so disturbing. And it's with, you know, the, the comic touch that it uses for this sort of major part of the plot. I was appalled and fascinated at the same time. Like, I really, like, as far as the plot goes, I was far more engaged with this one than any of the others. And just because it turns horrific sexual abuse into comedy. (laughs) She sees Jose Ortega at the party and she loses her shit. She, like, drops her glass of wine or whatever and becomes comatose again. Like, that's how awful. She abandons her mission just to shoot him in cold blood because of what she's gone through. Yeah, no, it's it's super messed up. Like, the whole plan, basically, is that, like, let's use her. She doesn't remember anything. She thinks that Matt Helm is her husband because the last thing that she remembers is them working on a mission together where they were pretending to be husband and wife. The whole plan is to trigger her trauma back so they know what happened to her and who did it, which is so <laughs> horrific and horrible. And they even say, like, part of the reason why when she's super nutty with the white hair and doesn't know what's happening, they're like, well, she's gone crazy. She thinks every man's trying to kill her. And I'm like, (laughs) like, yeah, they are. Like, (laughs) 
That's kind of legit. And this is like, as you're saying, like juxtaposed with several sexy women in like these like bikinis that have like a strap that goes from the top to the bottom, but like military style bikinis and they're learning how to shoot ray guns or whatever. Like, so it's like that's happening. And then like she's going through this insane trauma. It's terrible. And then the rest of the movie is like, there's like an Oleg Cassini fashion show straight up. Like, they name Oleg Cassini, and they're like, yep, here's some clothing. Like, let's look at this nice clothing. And, oh, look, it's Acapulco, like, hotel. It's just legit pretty cool looking. And <laughs> and then, like, that, even the that Ortega guy, he looks like a Jerry Lewis character. He doesn't... <laughs> oh, I don't know. He's yeah, He kind of freaked me out. He's freaky. He's, yeah, Albert Salvi, who I've seen in so many things, and I've, I've always got icky vibes from him and he's like running the dos equis beer factory it's like straight up dos equis but they don't call it out they just keep saying it's beer and we get a nice long tour of the beer factory and matt helm every time a bullet hits a pipe and and beer shoots out of it he samples it he opens his mouth and, and drinks so <laughs> and of course he ends up in a beer vat and makes a joke about drinking their way to the bottom and... yeah some guy gets like willy wonka out of the tubes of the beer vat <laughs> Yeah, and then when Sheila like ends up in Jose Ortega's clutches at the end, like she's she's lost it again, and being in the hands of her abuser has made her not know what to do anymore. You know, not to mention the fact that uh, along the way, one of his henchmen tries to sexually assault her in the backseat of a car, and luckily she's wearing the uh, the tenth victim <laughs> bra, so so he gets his. But between all these scenes of terrible shit happening to Sheila. She, like, whenever she's snapped out of her uh, catatonia, she has this, like, really enjoyable rapport with uh, with Dean Martin. Like, the two of them are a really good pair. There's, they sort of feel like the Thin Man or something. Nick, Nick and Nora Charles are, like, you know, just this husband and wife detective team or something. And they really, it feels like something out of a, you know, an older movie. Like, something Dean Martin would have made back when he was in his prime. It's a sort of light comedy detective movie. And... The, the two contrasting tones just... I, I really didn't know what to make of this movie, but it really stood out from the others for that reason. Yeah, I mean, like, Janice Rule is great in this. Apparently, Dean Martin had a big crush on her at the time, but he did not even get to first base with her because she was married to Ben Gazzara at this point. Hmm. And uh, I guess she wasn't cheating. He was, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. This movie, though, it's just, like... It's, like, too serious, and then it's too bland and like for a movie with like a ufo and there's like a scene where he's meant to be have death by firing squad but like they all end up sort of like a weed reference like they all like have a this like cigarette like this laughing gas from a cigarette but it's basically just weed and everyone just like falls down laughing oh yeah they're they're quote-unquote mexican cigarettes yeah so and of course uh, matt helm doesn't partake at all because he would never touch this stuff because he's strictly alcohol only weed is for the kids but you never get to see like the ufo go anywhere i was sort of willing to accept all of this horrific stuff that happens to janice rule because you just expect horrible things to happen to women in james bond movies it's always like he like has sex with them and murders them at least like matt helm doesn't seem to murder the women that he's betting i mean he has sex with janice rule in like broad daylight in the bushes at some point they also have a pretty sweet blow-up tent that's pretty cool. Yeah, self-inflating blow-up tent complete with circular Matt Helm bed and <laughs> uh, 
you know, all of a sudden there are like hardwood tables inside. And there's a lot of digs at Sinatra, which and all of these have digs at Sinatra, which I, we haven't mentioned. But it's always like there, there's jokes about like Perry Como and Sinatra and even like Dean Martin's music will play. And the women are like, turn this shit off. And then like Sinatra comes on and he's like, oh, you like that crap? Like there's a lot of that. Yeah, it, it seems like playful ribbing, though. Yeah, it's actually pretty funny. I mean, there definitely seems to be some jealousy on Dean Martin's part. How Frank is getting these respectable film roles in the '60s, I, I guess, you know, Manchurian Candidate and whatnot. But and he's he's stuck in these shitty Matt Helm movies. Well, at this point, so here's the thing about Dean Martin: like by by '68, and and you can see it too. I think that's another thing that kind of just takes me out of it, and probably because I'm a little more focused on Dean Martin in these movies. But you can tell. I mean, like, there's definitely scenes. And as these Matt Helm movies go on, you can see him just getting increasingly drunker. <laughs> and like <laughs> Dean Martin is someone, you know, he, he built a career, especially later on in the 60s, on playing up the drunkness, which he really wasn't. Like everyone sort of says that like he would drink throughout the day, but not in a way that he ever got messy. Like it would be more like a pleasant high, as they call it. Um, <laughs> some some people would call it alcoholism, but um you know, so he never got nutty, but, you know, he was continually drinking. And I think at this point in his life, again, it came back to that sort of, is that all there is uh, attitude? But in 68, in between Murderer's Row and then the Ambushers and then the Wrecking Crew, which is the next one, Dean Martin had like actually a horrible time. His Both of his parents had died. His mother was dying during the Ambushers from an aggressive cancer and then his father died like six months apart mostly from a broken heart dean martin doesn't really give many interviews and he gave some pretty depressing interviews around this time where he sort of talks about just like that you know money can't buy your way out of death kind of stuff Uh, and then not too long after that by the end of this year his brother died from a brain tumor so by 68 all of dean martin's immediate family was dead And I think on top of him already having, he was like continually drinking. I think that it got worse. He ended up splitting up with his long-term wife, Jeannie. And he was like engaged to some 20 year old, which didn't work out, but the separation stuck. And and so like Dean Martin's like kind of got as close to a, a mental breakdown as, as someone as stoic and manly as Dean Martin could have had. (laughs) He kind of like receded into the depths of his mind I don't think he was interested in anything at this point in his life. So it's like, it's like so, kind of sad. And then you watch these movies and, it, and it's just so obvious because like if especially and I, I mean like part of it is that Dean Martin's like image is these movies. This The, the whole drunk image in and especially the Dean Martin show, which is kind of a load of shit. Like, I mean, there's some kind of some good moments of the Dean Martin show, but mostly it's like it's it's almost embarrassing to watch unless you're just you know, you want to zone out. Like, it's a great zone out. Is it a variety show or is it sketches? I've never seen it. Uh, it's like, you know, he, he comes on, he sings, he makes jokes about women. He'll have a guest on, they'll do a sketch or they'll they'll sing with him. It, it's like kind of whatever. It's, it's it's very loose. Like, I understand why it was popular. And, and honestly, especially in the early years, it, it is fun. Like, when he has a good guest on... It's amusing because it, it's just like I can't believe this guy is getting paid to, <laughs> to just like, you know, wing it um, on live television. And, you know, and he does a good job. You know, he's 
professional. He knows what he's doing. But that's not the Dean Martin that I appreciate for what it's worth. I have more fun with him when he's trying. Well, he's definitely not trying in The Wrecking Crew, and he is so clearly inebriated at all times during this one. It's for groovy girls and boys In this oriental path You are welcome night and day Recommended by Matt And by the A.K.A. Also, also Very, very nice The Wrecking Crew is my most hated Matt Helm movie to the point that I just kind of didn't even want to rewatch it, but... It's easily the worst. I'm kind of like, God bless the poor dumb bastards that try to go back and watch us after the new uh, Tarantino movie comes out. Why? Because Sharon Tate is in it? Yeah, no, it's a, it's referenced. The movie's directly referenced in the trailer for uh, the new Tarantino movie because it's about her shooting the Wrecking Crew because this is the last movie she did before she died. And you don't like her performance in this. I thought she was fine. She's just kind of doing the klutzy thing that Stella Stevens was doing in The Silencers. I'm old. This whole movie was just kind of a retread of The Silencers. Same director. They brought back Phil Carlson. And I thought her comic chops were just as good as Stella Stevens. It's just that she was just retread. She is a retread, but here's the thing about Sharon Tate in this movie. I don't dislike Sharon Tate, but in this film, she just... she makes me so angry because she's essentially unlike Stella Stevens in the first movie. Stella Stevens is like this sort of hapless loser. Essentially. She's sort of cliche Barbie doll. She has, you know, no thoughts in her head. She's super clumsy, but she's beautiful. uh, And she gets away with it. Sharon Tate in this movie though, comes across more as this, like a satire of the can do working woman, but she's just a total idiot. Like, just everything she touches, she makes worse. Even Matt Helm, at a point, kind of dismisses her as essentially not even being worth the sex appeal because she's just so useless, which is super sexist and obnoxious. But, like, I just can't stand her because she's just... There's a scene where she puts on a brown wig and suddenly she gets smarter. Like, she just comes across as so offensive. Like, she's just the most offensive satire of women. This is the one movie, uh, of all of these movies, which are obviously and overtly sexist, The Wrecking Crew, to me, just hates women. I can't get over it. Like, it just hates women. Well, and it's... So these movies all have a bad guy who's a female and is always, without fail, a foreigner. Like, it's always got to be the Italian. or the, We didn't even mention Cinta Berger in, uh, in the last one, in The Ambushers. She's the villainess in that movie. And, and this movie has two foreign villainesses, both Elka Summer and Nancy Kwan. Yeah, you rang. Very not racist. The, the opening theme of this movie is so painfully racist by the way. <laughs> so painfully racist. And the lyrics are co-written by um, Mac David, who wrote Bippity Boppity Boo and the Unbirthday song for Disney's Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland. So I can't remember the melody, but I do have some lyrics written down that go, ah, so very, very nice. Yes, it's super racist. <laughs> and it's all about this House of Seven Joys, which apparently was the working title for the film. And then they changed it. And it doesn't make sense. The movie's set in Denmark. And yet they're like hardcore. This is the most racist of all of these movies. And that even includes the one with Victor Bono and and Yellow Face. (laughs) 
Well, this was after You Only Live Twice, where Bond goes to Japan, so they had to get some of that Eastern element in there. Yeah, apparently. And and the plot here kind of sucks. I mean, it's basically that, like, a billion dollars of gold gets stolen by this Count Contini, who's played by Nigel Green, and Matt Helm has to get it back without letting anyone know because uh, it'll crash the world market. Like, boo fucking... Uh, and, uh, he tries to talk to this, like, ex-associate of Contini, and she gets, like, blown to bits by a trick bottle of scotch, which is actually kind of funny. Oh, Tina Louise. Yeah, Ginger from Gilligan's Island. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's playing a gypsy stripper, I guess. So she's basically playing the Sid Charisse role from the first movie. Yeah, and, like, Sharon Tate is this Freya Carlson who's meant to be... She claims she's part of the tourist bureau, but she's really an ICE agent who's just, like, insanely incompetent at literally everything. Like, she can't breathe right. And, like, whereas Stella Stevens took clumsiness to, like, a, like a funny level. You know, like, she she's at least making an effort, and she has the script that supports her to make an effort to be a comedian and not just a sexy woman. Sharon Tate does not have that. She's only working against herself. You know, when she's not trying to be completely incompetent, she's trying to be super, super sexy. And in a way that even Matt Helm is like, get the hell out of here. (laughs) She does have a cool karate fight with Nancy Kwan that's choreographed by Bruce Lee. Yep, Bruce Lee was the karate consultant on this movie. And Chuck Norris is in it for five seconds. He gets beaten up by Dean. Oh, I missed that. The only thing that's sort of clever in this movie is just that they disguise all these gold bars as bricks and they spray paint them. (laughs) Like that was kind of like, I was like, all right, that's kind of neat. But otherwise, it's just a god awful movie. I mean, like, and the stakes are so low. Panic in like the financial world. I don't care. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you've got socks that blow up. That's his big gadget in this one. And a lot of stuff blows up in it. They steal the mini helicopter from You Only Live Twice. Oh, yeah, that, like, open-air helicopter? That was kind of okay. I mean, Nancy Kwan has some awesome outfits in this. She's wearing some, like, super psychedelic sequin dresses that I can 100% get behind. And, I mean, the music in this is definitely trying to, like, tap into what the kids are listening to. Yeah. But it's so inoffensively bland. Like, it's pretty funny, actually, the, the sort of pop choral music that's playing. But it's definitely not rock. It's, like, rock that your parents could listen to. That's sort of like ba-ba-ba, 60s music. It's like very inoffensive and obnoxious at the same time. Clearly, this Bond mania was on the way out when this was made. Dean Martin knew it. We wouldn't come back for another Matt Helm movie. They didn't, didn't make another Flint movie. I mean, there were between Bonds at this point. Sean Connery was done. You know, mad search for his replacement. I guess this film was made in uh, 68, and it took a while for it to come out. Like, I think it didn't actually hit theaters until 69. And then On Her Majesty's Secret Service came out at the end of that year with George Lazenby. And you know, everybody thought that was the end of James Bond forever when that movie didn't really take off the way they had hoped. I mean, it's my favorite Bond movie, but nobody seemed to like it much. So, um, well, the wrecking crew ends. It says, like all of the other um, Helm movies, it says, coming up next, The Ravagers. And they never did it because, as you said, uh, Dean Martin was just, just dropped out of it. I do have, because I've read all of these Dean Martin biographies, information on what that movie would have been. <laughs> and um, I have to share this with you because the plot was meant to be that Matt Helm had a perfect double who assassinated a congressman, and then Matt Helm has to bring that murderer to justice. 
And it would have had like Matt Helm wearing multiple disguises in order to distinguish himself from his evil double. Apparently, it would have included, quote, an elderly mother Helm, a bewigged lawyer, a hippy dippy ice cream vendor, and uh, Dean Martin just flat out refused. <laughs> <laughs> He's playing all these roles. Yeah, he would have been all of these these like disguises. And he went to court with Columbia over it. And essentially, they just sort of took money out of his profits for the Wrecking Crew. Because Dean had produced all of these movies, too, by the way. He said he agreed to it by saying, as long as my production company gets a piece of the action. His production company called Claude, by the way, that was just... <laughs> I still, I'm still not totally sure what Claude was, but that was the name of his production company. But I think, I mean, he had a handful of reasons. Number one, that Bond was kind of getting over that these movies had declining profits uh, anyhow from the first two were very popular and it, it just steeply went downhill from there. And then I think, quite frankly, it was because he probably already thought he looked stupid doing these movies <laughs> and he didn't want to do more. In, uh, Dean Martin in general, it's kind of funny if you like looking at his filmography, he was not a big fan of putting on costumes and especially wigs. He has the same exact haircut in literally everything he does. He never changes his look. I just don't understand why they couldn't get a stunt double for him that had his hair. Because <laughs> <laughs> his stunt double looks nothing like him and you get lots of really good shots of his stunt double. Oh, I know. It's, which is also a part of the charm of all these movies, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, like, and he also just, Dean Martin looks old as hell in comparison to the women in these movies. Like, it's it's, it's sort of embarrassing. And especially, actually, the best part of the last movie is the beginning where he's doing his photo shoot and he's falling asleep. And there's all of these, like, these women in these, like, insane outfits. There's one who's, like, wearing a leather bikini with a phone over her genitals and, like, the receiver is over her boobs and she's wearing a top hat. Or, like, there's, like, a sexy Harlequin bikini, like, long sleeve crop top. And, like, she has, like, a like a fire, like, literally her head's on fire with a torch. Mm. I feel like somebody's dressed in balloon animals. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, there's all of these, like, there's someone's like a, just a sexy baby. It's just like these horrible, <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> outfits. But like, and then there's Dean Martin, who at this point is pushing, he's like 52, and he's making out with all these like 21-year-olds, and he looks old. Like, he looks bad. And also, like, at this point, he just does not care, and it's very obvious. And after this movie happened, and after he said, screw these Matt Helm movies, he went and, depending on your source, he either got an eye lift or he got a facelift after this movie, which you can definitely tell in the next film that came out, which I think was Airport, which came out in 1970. Well, I'm not exactly sorry that The Ravagers was never made. I'm not sure I can watch another Bond spoof after this one. <laughs> I think it's kind of interesting to look at Helm and Flint together because if James Bond is the ultimate British man... That the offering of a, the ultimate American man are like super like lazy and sleazy guys that just like to bang women with with like just no pretense. Like even like James Bond, like they try to make out like, oh, he's super serious. But look at this fun stuff he gets up to on the side with Flint and Helm. It's more like like look at all these cool women they get to bed. And then he does some spy shit, you know, <laughs> like. The yeah. focus is so shifted. I think Flint, again, tries a little harder to actually be sort of like a fun and interesting character, whereas Matt Helm is just, 
it's it's just the most phoned in Dean Martin. Well, it's like they took two opposite approaches of spoofing James Bond with Flint. Let's take Bond's competence and exaggerate it to unbelievable heights that if every man wants to be James Bond, then they'll want to be Flint even more because he's better at everything than Bond is. You know, he even refuses the... There's a joke in the first one where he refuses a Walther that his boss gives him because, you know, that's James Bond's weapon. I, I, w- I would never sink to using something you know so simple. I have brains and judo skills. I don't need any of that garbage. But And then Helm kind of goes in the opposite direction where if the male fantasy is for Bond or Flint is to be this, you know, ultimate superman who can do anything well and knows everything and matt helm is kind of like the everyman is like any male could achieve matt helm's level of skill like he's not particularly good at anything he's not incompetent but he doesn't ever show any you know, particular knowledge you know he he knows how to fire a gun and that seems to be his only real skill as, as a spy <laughs> that's so true <laughs> he's over the hill although dean martin doesn't play him that way but he's clearly over the hill and he's just like the bond every man like any of us could be him i do have some reviews that came out about the silencers written down here One is, quote, most of Dean's throwaway lines should have been thrown away before the film ever went into production. (laughs) (laughs) That's the whole charm, though. (laughs) If it weren't for those, I would would have no use for that movie. Another one says, uh, from Brendan Gill here, says, Dean is the worst and most self-confident actor in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Here's another good one was, quote, uh, Matt Helm nuzzling wenches with the suggestion that either cirrhosis or satyrisis will finish him off at any minute. <laughs> My favorite is Pauline Kael found it, quote, crude but good-natured. <laughs> That's how I kind of feel about these movies. I mean, like, they're they're so bad, though, but they just buy into themselves so much. It just takes everything that James Bond is almost dancing around. And James Bond's pretty upfront and obvious and overt with its shittiness but like the mad helm movies have an awareness and and maybe this is in part because this is what i really like about dean martin and dean martin has great comedic timing he knows how to do these sort of double takes and he knows how to deliver a line that sort of lets you in on the joke that he knows that this is stupid but he's still gonna go with it and he's still gonna do it to the best of his ability And unfortunately, that kind of degrades as all these movies go on. But like there is something that's just so it is. It's like Austin Powers. I mean, like there's so much that you can see was taken for Austin Powers that Matt Helm was doing and quite well. You know, it really is. It's a solid satire of James Bond. Well, yeah, I mean, Austin Powers is just it recognizes the inherent absurdity of all of these movies and just goes totally absurd. Whereas there's just a, you know, a hint of it here and there with Flint and and Matt Helm and it doesn't make for good comedy. It doesn't make for good spy story. I also think it's interesting that Austin Powers, he's sort of the hip version of the sixties man. He's sort of the Michael Caine or the, you know, swinging London version of these guys. Whereas these guys are total like old school, alcoholic parents generation guys like bond flint and dean martin are all like especially the later helm movies are are, you know desperately trying to like connect to this uh you know this young hip audience and just failing completely whereas 
you know, Austin Powers is free love, hippy dippy stuff, which is not really in keeping with this character at all. So I think there's more on Austin Powers' mind than just this aspect of the 60s super spy. You know, he's a photographer, just like Matt Helm is in, in these movies, but he's also, it's it's as much referencing David Hemmings in Blow Up, and, and it's even more sort of in the style of Blow Up in the Helm or Flint movies. I mean, there's so much about 10th Victim and Austin Powers, too. It's funny watching Austin Powers now, because I can see how much of Matt Helm and how much of 10th Victim and how much all the scenes where like every time someone's naked and something's covering them, that's like straight out of the girl on a motorcycle. Although there is that part in the silencers when uh, Helm and craves it, get out of the tub and they're, they're strategically placed towels and things to block their nudity. Like I thought that was the main reference in Austin Powers. I actually love all of the Matt Helm inventions are all stuff like that. It's all just like, here's a bar that pours your own gin, you know? <laughs> like, here's a towel that will dry you off without using your hands. Like, oh, great. Well, I kind of feel like this episode needs to end with a, a pool dunk. Good morning. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conoscevo bene by Piero Piccione. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.